0: This is Saving Grace, living in light of God's love, a podcast ministry brought to you by Grace School of Theology, a seminary to the world committed to the truth of Scripture and life application through the lens of
1: grace. Hello, I'm Carmen Pate, your host for today's podcast. Do you ever ask yourself, Why do I do the things I know I shouldn't do and don't do the things that I should do? If so, I can relate. And so could the Apostle Paul. Why is this a dilemma for every human alive, even Christians? Because the flesh is weak, Scripture tells us. But what exactly is the flesh? How can the flesh be defeated for me to walk triumphantly with Christ in a life of glory? Mark Ray will take us to the scripture for the answers to those questions. Mark is Vice President of Community Development here at Grace and has a substantial history with Grace School of Theology, including being an original Board of Trustee member and primary advisor from earliest days. Mark holds a Master of Biblical Studies from Dallas Theological Seminary, also a Master of Divinity from Grace School of Theology. He has served churches as an associate pastor and as lead pastor and has served as COO of a major evangelistic ministry. Mark will soon be launching the Grace Center for Spiritual Development, which we'll tell you more about in the weeks to come. But listen now to Mark Ray's message, The Flesh is Weak, in our series on A Life of Glory.
0: For 10 years, the Greeks laid siege to the city of troy to no avail ten years day after day week after week month after month year after year they laid siege to the city of troy and could not penetrate the city and one day they got a brilliant idea they devised an incredible trick they built a gigantic wooden horse this gigantic wooden horse they wheeled up to the front of the gates of troy And they brought an emissary from the Greek army to the front, and the emissary said, This is a gift offering of peace. We no longer want to live at war with you. We want to make this offering of peace, and to show you how much peace we want to bring, we're going to leave. The Greeks got in their boats, left the port city, and sailed away. Several of the Trojan soldiers went down to the shorefront to see if the Greeks had actually been true to their word, and they had. The ships had gone. And so they wheeled this enormous horse, what we know as the Trojan horse, inside the city. That night was a night of celebration. It was a night of proclaiming peace throughout their city. And while they were celebrating in wine and food and song, four soldiers from the Greek army crept out of the belly of that horse and flung open the gates to the city of Troy. The Greeks who had quietly sailed back into the harbor marched in and in less than 24 hours did in one night what they couldn't do in 10 years. They defeated the Trojan army, captured them, and made them slaves in bondage to the Greeks, their bitter enemy. We're in the seventh part of a 10-part series on the spiritual life. We started seven messages ago dealing with the word glory. 1 Corinthians 10.31, whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. From then, we understood that in order to manifest His character, we had to live that out. We had to conform to His character, which was a holy character. He said in the Old Testament and the New Testament, be holy for I am holy. We found that coming out of the Garden of Eden through Adam and then subsequently from us, our sin shattered that holiness. And God, stepping in like he always has done, steps in and puts a plan in place through his son, Jesus Christ, that through him, we are graced and graced abundantly through his death and resurrection, that we are made now positionally holy, who we were supposed to be. And out of our life, we now have the resources, because we're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, and 33 divine gifts of grace, we now have the ability to be able to live up to who we were created to be, holy in Jesus Christ. And out of that, we are to be living triumphant lives as one who, walking in that grace, are overcomers. We're triumphant. Last week, we looked at why don't we live triumphant lives. And we saw that that sin nature that Christ put to death rears its ugly head, and we put it back on. And Paul's answer out of Romans 6, Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14, was this, that first we are to know who we are in Christ... We are those who have... The things that Christ did in his death and resurrection have been applied to us. So what he put to death on the cross, that sin nature has been put to death in us too. So we're to know who we are in Christ. We are to consider ourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Jesus Christ. That that sin nature has no control over us anymore. And we are to present ourselves to him as instruments of his righteousness because that's who we are. So knowing all of that... Why do we still sin? Paul tells us in Romans 7, the reason we still sin is the flesh, our Trojan horse. The flesh is that thing that is inside of us that opens the door to sin, to our sin nature. It is is that thing empowered by sin that opens the door as those soldiers came down and flung open the gates to their enemy. The flesh is that Trojan horse inside of us. But Paul's going to deal with, in Romans chapter 7, the flesh, that thing that is our Trojan horse. And so this morning, what we want to look at is part two of this sin-breaking process, the first part being know, consider, and present, know who I am in Christ, consider myself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ, and present myself as his instrument of righteousness. The second part is, what do we do about the flesh? And we're going to look at defining the flesh. We're then going to describe it as Paul describes it in Romans chapter 7. We're going to then deflate the flesh, seen in Romans chapter 8. And then finally, how do we ultimately defeat the flesh? Let's look at a definition of the flesh. And I'm going to pull this from a number of Old Testament passages and New Testament passages and see how Paul ultimately fleshes out the flesh and come up with a definition. First, 2 Chronicles 32 verse 8 says this. With him, this is the Assyrians, is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles for us. The flesh here, man sees power and might in the flesh. We see power and might in the flesh, but those who believe in God see power and might in God himself. And what the chronicler here sets up is this distinctive between the flesh and God himself, that we see man sees power and strength in the flesh, but... For those of us who know God, power and strength comes from God and God alone. Psalm 78, verse 39 says this, For he, God, remembered that they, us, were but flesh, a breath that passes away and does not come again. Again, we see flesh and we see power and strength. God knows our flesh and knows that our flesh is nothing but frailty and weakness. The distinctive set up that frailty and weakness finds its strength in God and God alone. Isaiah 31.3 says, Now the Egyptians are men and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. The flesh opposes God, and it's not God. Though we might elevate the flesh to God, a little bit tougher for us in the Western world, because what have we been taught? We've been taught, stand on your own two feet, right? We've been taught, trust in yourself. Pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Do the work yourself. We've been taught all of that. And yet God says the flesh is weak. It's frail. Place your trust in me and me alone, not in man and his works. Final Old Testament look, Jeremiah seventeen five. This one really gets me. Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. Again, the connector that he sets up here is that the flesh reflects the heart. That cursed is the man who trusts in man and trusts in his own flesh and his own works. Because when we do that, what are we not trusting in? We're not trusting in the Lord himself, the one who is the epitome of power and strength on our behalf. The New Testament picks up this same statement. John 3, 6 says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. There is a distinctive between the two. That that is flesh is flesh, that that is spirit is spirit, and the two don't cross. And then Paul fleshes this out. Romans seven fourteen, he says, I am flesh, sold under sin. The flesh is in bondage to sin. Romans seven eighteen he says, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. There is no spiritual good in the flesh. None. Paul makes it very, very clear as he unfolds this whole idea of the flesh for us that distinctive that there's nothing good in the flesh. Nothing of spiritual consequence at all in the flesh. Romans 8, 3, he says this, For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. There's that weakness in the flesh again. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Now, this goes back to Romans chapter 6. What are we talking about here? God saw the frailty of the flesh. He saw the weakness of the flesh. And in order to help us overcome that, what he did was he sent his own son in the form of sinful flesh, in the form of a human, to conquer that sin. What God did again is He placed Christ in the middle of it to conquer the flesh and to conquer death, to put it to death. Galatians Galatians 5.17 says this, For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. There is a battle being waged inside of you and me. That battle is over us. It's over us. That the flesh is waging war to win control of us and the spirit is waging war against the flesh to win control of us. It's the battle that he lays out. And finally in Galatians 5.18, Paul says, Walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. The only thing that defeats the flesh is the spirit. The combination of all of these... It's going to get convicting in just a moment, if it hasn't been already. The combination of all this winds its way down to a definition that Paul gives us of the flesh, and that's this. The flesh is the indwelling spiritual principle or force empowered by sin, whereby I rely on myself for my personal identity, my security, and my resources apart from God and in opposition to God. I have a hard time with that. It's a lot of words, so let me bring it down a little bit more clearly and maybe a little bit more convictingly to this. The flesh is relying on my own resources to get what I want when I want it. If that isn't convicting enough, let me take it even a step further and say this. The flesh is any time I say me, myself, and my. Any time I use me, myself, and my, the flesh is kicked in because it's that selfish look at what I want when I want it. Sounds like my kids when they were little. I want what I want when I want it. That's the convicting side of this. And so the definition of that, I want what I want when I want it, when that kicks in, when me, myself, and my kicks in, guess what's just kicked in? The flesh. And as we're going to see in just a moment, that flesh is insidious. Well, that's the definition of it. Me, myself, and my, I want what I want when I want it. Right? So now let's describe it. Let's look at Romans chapter 7. Ooh, this gets fun. Verses 14 through 20. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read Romans chapter 7, 14 through 20. I'm going to put the accent on one specific word, and I want to see if you can pick out this one specific word. It won't be difficult, but here we go. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law, and that is good, but now it is no longer I who do it, but sin who dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells, for to will is present within me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. What's the word? It wasn't tough, was it? But now you begin to see the definition that Paul puts on the flesh. I, 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 I. And the insidious thing about this is every time I try to deal with the flesh, what am I dealing with it with? The flesh. And the flesh can't defeat the flesh, right? So I'm trying to knock down the flesh with the flesh, and all I do is I feed it. And the more I feed it, the more it grows. Well, what Paul describes here is what I call life in the eye. And I love the fact that Paul lays this down. All through my growing up years as a believer, since the time I was 14 years old, all through that time, I looked at Paul as the epitome, almost perfect in his Christian walk until I came to Romans chapter 7. I looked at Paul and went, yes, he understands me because life in the eye says this, I do what I don't want to do. I do what I don't want to do. That's when the flesh kicks in. I do what I don't want to do. Paul says, I wake up in the morning and I say, I don't want to do this. And I end up doing the very thing I said I don't want to do. Why? Because it's all about me. It's I. I try to battle me with me. And I can't defeat the flesh. Mm -hmm. Verse 24, he tells us, this is what it looks like when you live in the eye. Verse 24 says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death all that the flesh brings is death. It just brings death and nothing more. And Paul has an answer for that. He now moves us into how to deflate the flesh in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 17. And what happens in Romans chapter 8 is this. He changes the word I, where you see it in that section where it's I, 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 I. The word now becomes spirit. And it's spirit, 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 spirit. It's the focus on the Holy Spirit. Verses 1 through 5, what he gives us very specifically is a review of Romans chapter 6. Listen to verse 2. Paul says, For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. That sounds like Romans 6, doesn't it? By the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, by what he has done, he has freed me from sin, which has freed me from the death that sin brings. So by the work of Jesus Christ, I have been freed. That's a repeat. That's a a review. Look at verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. So instead of life in the eye, this is life in the Spirit. My focus is on the Spirit, on the things of the Spirit, and there there is life. When my focus is on the things of I, me, myself, and my, I want what I want when I want it, when that's my focus, it only brings death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. It only brings death. That's not just a salvation passage. That's in a section on the book of Romans where we're talking about your sanctified life. That when I continue to sin, it only brings death into my life. And Christ did away with that. And now in verse 5 we see He's also when we set our mind on the things of the Spirit, we have life, not death. Look at verse 10. In verses 6 through 10 He tells us that in, in the eye, life in the eye brings nothing but death. In the flesh there is nothing but death, but in the spirit there is nothing but life. Listen to verse 10. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. There is a difference between life and death. The difference between life and death is the difference between the flesh and the spirit. And those who have their mind focused, their eyes on the the Spirit, those who are focused on that and not focused on the eye or not focused on the flesh, they're walking in life. And isn't that where we want to be? So when we live in the Spirit, it looks like what we see in verses 12 through 14. Listen to verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Not those who are walking in the flesh, but those who are led by the Spirit... Our sons of God have that adoption. We're in the family. We're growing closer and closer into the relationship with God. But look at verse 15 because this one's really important. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Abba, Father is a really incredible statement that Jesus makes and that Paul makes. Abba, Father shows up three times in the New Testament. The first time it shows up is in Mark chapter 14, where Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane. He's getting ready to go to the cross. In the garden of Gethsemane, he cries out three times, Abba, Father. It is that intimate, deep, intimate statement between a son and his father, between a child of God and the father. In that deep, intimate statement, the first thing Jesus says is, Abba, Father, take this cup from me, right? Take this cup from me. This is a picture that we get of Jesus wrestling with the sinful flesh. Because if we translate it into the the definition, what Jesus is saying there is, take this cup. I want what I want when I want it. He's wrestling with the flesh right there. The human side of Jesus is wrestling with the flesh. In a deep intimate relationship, he says, Father, I don't want to do this. But then Jesus gives us the incredible example of how we are to defeat the flesh. Because the next statement he makes is this, not my will, but yours. See, it's, it's not, I want what I want when I want it. It's this, I want what you want when you want it. He never tells us, don't look out for your own interest. What he says is your own interest when it lines up with God's interest is the best interest. So what he's looking at is he says, don't say, I want what I want when I want it. That's the flesh. But when you say, I want what you want, Lord, when you want it, Lord, guess where you're walking? In the spirit. And Jesus gives us this example in the Garden of Gethsemane, the most intense time in his life. And when he does that, what does it do with his relationship with God the Father? Draws us more deeply, more intimately into it, and that's an Abba-Father relationship. The second time Paul uses Uh, The second time that Abba Father shows up in the New Testament is right here in Romans chapter 7. And let me read it again. Now that you have that a little bit in your mind, Romans chapter 7, verse 15, for you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit, Holy Spirit of adoption by whom we cry out Abba Father. We are adopted into the family as believers in Jesus Christ, right? One of the 33 divine gifts of grace. And when we cry out, Abba, Father, when the Spirit is with us, what does he do? He draws us more deeply. When we respond to the Spirit, draws us more deeply into an intimate Abba, Father relationship with the God of the universe. Because that's where there's life. He doesn't turn us away from him where there is death. When our focus is on the Spirit, he draws us in as adopted children to a closer relationship with the Father of the universe. In an Abba-Father relationship, the third time Abba-Father is used is in Galatians chapter 4, which is interesting because that comes right before Galatians chapter 5, which is where we see the fruit of the Spirit. And guess what the Holy Spirit does in us? As we focus on the Spirit, He changes us, transforms us. 2 Corinthians 3.18, we talked about last week. He transforms us more into the image of His Son, Jesus Christ, one character trait after another. What are those character traits? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, the fruits of the Spirit. He transforms us one character trait at a time. That's the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in our lives as we focus on him, not on me. And listen to Romans chapter 8, verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. It's the Holy Spirit that says you are a child of God. That what Christ did is right. It is true. It does bring life. He did do away with that death, with that sin. And he brings you into a deep Abba Father relationship with him. And my spirit bears witness with the Holy Spirit that I'm in that relationship when I focus on him. Verse 17, and if children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together with him. More of the graces of God, we're heirs. And as such, we are to live like heirs. And we do that through the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So when we live in the Spirit, we live in this Abba-Father relationship that brings life after life after life and transforms us into the image of Jesus Christ. One character trait after another. Isn't that great? When we ultimately do that, guess what? We're We're now living like who we are, that holy being that we were created to be, and we now do what we were created to do, and that's to show off him, to manifest his character to the world. And when we're doing that, there is life and life abundant. That's what Jesus talked about in John 10, 10, I came that you might have life and life abundant. And there is that when we focus on not the eye, not the flesh, but the spirit. And you see, when we focus on the Holy Spirit and not on the flesh, the Holy Spirit takes the place, defeats the flesh. We can't ever engage the power of sin nature in us because our focus is on the Holy Spirit who defeats the flesh. When the flesh doesn't engage, there's no power. That's what the focus of the Holy Spirit does. And he walks us through being led not to follow the eye, not to follow the flesh, but to follow him. And as we do that, he defeats the flesh in our lives. So we've looked at the definition, me, myself, and my, I want what I want when I want it. We've described it, I do what I don't want to do, I'm not who I want to be. We've looked at how to deflate it, life in the spirit and living in the spirit, and now we want to defeat it. When I was 14 years old, I trusted Christ. And there was one specific issue in my life that was a difficult issue in my life. It was the issue of anger. I played basketball in high school, and as a freshman, I had a really difficult time with my anger. Anytime I had a bad practice, anytime I had a bad game, I was known to throw a few words out there. I was known to slam a few locker doors. I even kicked in a locker door one Saturday afternoon, and my anger got the better of me, and I hated it, but I could not control it. You notice the I, I, I there? And sitting down with my brother when I was 14 years old, right before Christmas, he shared with me that the only way that that anger was going to be dealt with and done away with was have a relationship with Jesus Christ and allow the Holy Spirit to come inside of me. Right before Christmas, I trusted Christ. And I went back to him about six months later. I think I've shared this before. I went back to him six months later and said, Scott, my brother, it didn't take. He said, what are you talking about? I said, I don't feel any different. I'd heard about people who had these mountaintop experiences I'm telling you, there were no fireworks, nothing went off, no, no big, nothing. It just felt like nothing happened. And he said, let's just take a look at the last six months of your life. How's your language been? He said, well, it's been a little better. He said, how's your anger been? I said, Well, it's been a little better. He said, trust me, it took. You asked Christ into your life, it took. And What I came to realize later in life was what I was asking the Holy Spirit to do was to take away my anger, but I was asking the wrong question." What I needed to be asking was, why am I angry? What's the flesh getting out of this anger? What am I getting out of my anger? And for me, what I came to realize over the course of time was this. What I was feeding my flesh was this. When I was angry, especially when I played basketball, I was angry because I wasn't the center of attention. I wasn't the center of attention. If I played a bad game, people would look at me poorly. And so my anger was a way to get it out, and it drew attention. Even negative attention was attention back to me, right? And so my language and my kicking locker doors, all of that was just my attention. It was my flesh trying to get my own attention. And so the questions I started to ask were, what am I trying to get out of this? What's feeding my flesh? What what am I trying to get out of this? And once I began to uncover the source, and that was my own insecurity because I wasn't the center of attention, then I began to ask the Holy Spirit to change that character trait in me from ego to humility. Still working on it. Still happens occasionally. I still, still, do, well, I still do this. Think about your old life as this stinky, smelly, ripped-up, torn sports coat, but it's really comfortable. And when you trust Christ... He takes that stinky, smelly, unholy sport coat and he puts it to the side. He puts on you this white, gleaming, beautiful, unbelievable white coat. And it's beautiful. And that's what the Holy Spirit does for us. Continues to keep us in that coat and keeps that coat nice and clean. But you know what I keep doing? I keep taping that coat off and going back and picking up that old, stinky, yucky coat and putting that back on. Because I think it's comfortable, and all it does is smell. Focusing on the Holy Spirit takes that coat and throws it away and only puts the holiness, that holy, righteous, white coat on me that is who I am in Christ. So how do we defeat the flesh? We start asking the right questions. Lord, help me understand why I do this. Help me work through this. Why, what, what is my flesh being fed with that gets me there? Uncover that truth and then deal with that character issue in me and transform it into the image of Jesus Christ. Those are the questions to ask. And that's ultimately in focusing on the Holy Spirit who knows me. By the way, who's living in me? Holy Spirit, right? Christianity 101, I'm in dwell with the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk about this next week. He's in me, right? And he knows what I need, Right? he's part of the Trinity, right? So he's communicating with whom? God the Father, right? Who wants me to live holy and righteous, right? So in talking with God the Father, the Father tells him, Holy Spirit, this is what we need to change in Mark. So convict him of it. Let him see it. And now show him your power, which is the power of the Trinity working inside of me, the resurrected power of Jesus Christ to overcome the flesh through the Holy Spirit so that I can live like who I am, righteous. Holy, who I was created to be, and show off Christ to the world. And the interesting thing about the Holy Spirit is He does it uniquely for you, and for you, and for you, and for you, and for me.
1: You have been listening to Mark Ray. What a relief it is to know that we don't have to allow our flesh to control us. Praise God for His Holy Spirit, who empowers us as we lean on Him. We encourage you to check out our many books like Position and Condition by Dr. Dave Anderson and courses like The Grace of God and our many devotionals, which we make available online to you at gsot.edu. These will all help you to live this life of glory. And remember, if you have missed previous podcasts, you can find them all in our archive. Do you have family and friends who need to hear about God's amazing grace? Sharing our podcast is a perfect way to start that conversation. We're so glad you tuned in today. And remember, the love of Christ can never be earned and can never be lost.
0: You have been listening to Saving Grace, a podcast ministry of Grace School of Theology. For more information, visit gsot.edu savinggrace Views expressed on this podcast may not always be the views of Great School of Theology or its leadership.